Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. That's one small step for man. One all right welcome to the first episode of casual historians the podcast for individuals who constantly find themselves chit-chatting about history whether it's on a road trip or next to the water cooler we'll be talking about just about anything and everything before or after the common era so we don't limit ourselves to the common era the only thing we won't be talking about is the future Okay, because this is a history podcast. So a couple introductions here. I'm Joe. I majored in media and also minored in history, concentrated in warfare. So really the perfect blend to create a history podcast in my bedroom. I'm also joined here with... Kira. Um, <laughs> I did not major or minor in history. I'm just kind of your basic history nerd. Honestly, my dream probably would have been to just go out and be an archaeologist, which is a great intro into today, because what we'll be talking about today is ancient Egyptian discoveries. And it's also important to note that Kira has recently come down with laryngitis. So she's recovering on her voice. So I'll probably be taking the lead as she rests her voice. Joe also, even if I didn't have laryngitis, <laughs> is known for his radio voice. So even once I'm fully healed, you will probably be looking forward to his much more. So first episode, we'll be talking about ancient archaeological digs in Egypt, but more specifically the New Kingdom. So we'll be talking about the ancient city of Thebes, as well as Amarna. Uh, as well as the Valley of Kings and Queens, and then the Temple of Hatshepsut. But really, we talk about a whole bunch of things, and it hopefully will blend all together here. But we can get into it. We can start with the ancient city of Thebes. So let's travel back in time here. And this is here. This is where we're going to have the, the, the sound effect going back in time. Okay, ancient Thebes, modern-day Luxor. So if you've been to Vegas, Luxor. That's what it's named after. People forget. No kidding. Yeah. Um, so Thebes, really, it served as the royal capital of Egypt during the New Kingdom. Uh, it was also called Nuwe, or the city of Amun. And Amun is its chief god. It's a combination of Atum and Ra. I'm sure you've heard of, of Ra, the Egyptian god, of course. But really, the name Thebes comes from the Greeks. They called it Thebai, which is Coptic Greek of Taopet which is the name of the great Karnak temple, which is actually built in that region. So it became Thebes. And something to point out as we're going through these is a lot of these cities through time, you know, when we talk about new kingdom, old kingdom, the Roman period, names evolve over time, the way that we interpret them evolves over time. 
So just something to keep in mind as we move through. Oh, yeah. Lots of names. So it's about 36 square miles. It includes Luxor, the Valley of the Kings, the Valley of the Queens, and Karnak. And we'll be touching on a fair amount of these throughout the the episode here. Uh, But let's kind of backtrack to the Old Kingdom and talk about kind of the inception of Thebes. The city originally was kind of a minor trading post in Upper Egypt, which was kind of controlled by local clans throughout. But what's interesting about it, and especially Egyptian culture as we think about it as a whole, is it's very focused on religion. You know, something that Joe and I have talked about during our research for this episode is how there's the life that these people lived and then the life that they were looking forward to afterwards or the afterlife, as you might think of it. But what Thebes was thought to be was it was thought to have been formed by the hands of Amun and the trinity of Amun, Mut, and Khons, which, by the way, apologies if there are any mispronunciations. <laughs> Please let us know if there's anything that we need corrections on. But these gods would be worshipped for centuries and led to the development of Thebes as this capital that we begin to talk about. Yeah, no, and it's interesting to think about how becoming almost a religious powerhouse is grounds for investment into things. So because it became this big, massive mecca almost of Egypt, um, they started funneling money into massive temples and all the things we're about to talk to. But it became really a hub of religion and a center of religion. And that just leads to more and more uh, investment and money. And what you'll hear about is that there are absolutely examples, too, of once you lose the temples as these economic powerhouses, you see some pretty intense declines in certain cities. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, touching a little bit more on Thebes, really. So the Hyksos, which is a, a dynasty of Palestinian religion, uh, origin, it's it's kind of disputed where they actually came from, but most people believe it's Palestinian. Um, they actually invaded and controlled much of the area by 1650 uh, BCE. So they were actually regarded as oppressive foreigners, but actually evidence suggests that they introduced many innovations such as the chariot to this area and also were adding to the culture of the area. But it's important to note that this area of Egypt was controlled by non-Egyptians for a a long time. And then after the invasion and the seizure of this, they had little or no power in about 1630 over Thebes. It was really the lords of that city who, who finally drove the Hyksos out. And then this began really the era of the great prosperity for Thebes. So the 18th dynasty, pharaohs rebuilt it, made it their capital. And they created temples and embellished it with the spoils of Asia and really the tribute to uh, Nubia, or Nubia, sorry, uh, which is in northeastern Africa. Really, everything was brightly painted and surrounded with gardens on both sides of the Nile. And really, a lot of the temples and things like that we'll, we'll be talking about came during this time of prosperity. The height of the Theban prosperity was reached in the 14th century BCE during the reign of Amenhotep III, much of whose vast wealth from foreign tribute was poured into the temples of Amun. So this is kind of talking about this is peak ancient Egyptian society. We're getting into, you know, the times of Ramses II, Amenhotep, more famous, but lesser lesser ruling of King Tut. And for a brief period in the reign of the son of Amenhotep, Akhenaten, 
Thebes actually fell on tough times. So going back to what we had originally talked about, where once you lose this religious influence, the economic prosperity that comes with it, you see a decline in certain cities. And what we'll get into later on in this episode is how Akhenaten actually changed up religion entirely and also the capital city. Yeah, and really the the city was abandoned by that court and the worship of Amon was actually forbidden. So you see, as Kira mentioned, when worshiping gods is forbidden, less prosperity happens in these cities because they're just so intertwined. Money and religion at this time period is so intertwined. Um, And we see that. But really uh, an interesting name, Tutankhamun actually regained a lot of restoration. Basically, he led the restoration of Thebes at the time. And they soon regained a lot of its revenues and prestige. And really through the reigns of Seti I and Ramses II or Ramses the Great. So they they were down on tough times. They were down bad, as some would say. <laughs> um, but then Tutankhamun really read, uh, led this restoration back of Thebes. And then also the city continued to be, you know, richly endowed, according to ancient sources, Ramses III um, actually donated over 86,000 slaves and vast estates to the temples of Amon or Amon's temples. So very generous of him to, to donate all those slaves. To just, you just know, a donate wonderful, people. A wonderful human being. But then, of course, you know, as with everything, things decline and eventually fall apart. Um, So towards some of the later dynasties, uh, Thebes really began to decline. Government fell into grave economic difficulties, uh, primarily during the reign of Ramses IX. Actually, a series of investigations into the plundering of royal tombs in the necropolis of Western Thebes uncovered proof of corruption in high places. So an accusation made by the mayor of the East Bank against his colleague on the West. Uh, so it's actually really interesting to think about, you know, investigations and plundering of royal tombs and then also just the idea of corruption because we deal with this stuff almost today, like corruption in, in governments. And it's really just goes to show that, you know, human behavior doesn't change no matter if it's ancient Egypt or modern day. Yeah, kind of like an ancient inside job almost, <laughs> where if you think that it was just some rando robbing these temples and tombs you would be incorrect. Yeah. And I'm like, it's funny. I mean, honestly, in this day and age, if this was occurring, you would probably have some sort of, you know, documentary going on or some (laughs) investigation that you would see on like Dateline or something like that about um, the corruption. But yeah, it's, it is interesting because you'll see it's a, a, a massive theme is just the plundering of these tombs and how it just leads to so much insurrection almost, uh, in the ancient times. But really, it was this maladministration in Thebes that led to the unrest. So the control of local affairs came into the hands of the high priests of Amun, um, leading to a situation in which the government of Egypt was shared between the pharaoh. Um, Fun fact, pharaoh means king. So if you didn't know that, you're welcome. Um, (laughs) The pharaoh in Tanis, which is in like northern Egypt, uh, and the high pontiff at Thebes. So pontiff is like kind of like the pope, the religious leader. So you see kind of this blend of kings versus religion and who has the power, um, which is a consistent theme in human history, but really that it became kind of in the forefront at Thebes and really was part of their decline was who's controlling the city, who's in power. So it really was just declining because of this insurrection, the issues of maladministration. And then from there, uh, the Nubian pharaohs made Thebes their capital in 7th century BCE. 
something to think about in history in general is just this idea of cities built upon cities where nothing truly changes in the sense that the capitals remain the same. The way that we talk about Thebes is actually named for from Greek origins, but just as this evolution of this part of the world continues, you know, we might lose these original Egyptian pharaohs, but the culture still relatively similar, the cities and the layouts relatively similar, um, and just the progression through history. Yeah. No, and I mean, even with the decline of Thebes, the, it was still noted by Greeks such as Homer, he speaks of the wealth of hundred gated Thebes, but really the full kind of downfall was in six. 63, so 663 BCE, um, it was sacked by Assyrians. And although it was kind of rebuilt by some vassals of the Assyrians, it never fully recovered. So in 63 BCE to 23 Common Era, actually, so we've surpassed zero, the city actually dwindled to just a mere village visited by tourists uh, who came to see the ancient temples. So really, a fall from grace, but they had a really good run here. They really did. I was going to say, where what is that? Like at least a thousand years going there? Yeah. But I mean, so we just wanted to kind of set the stage with Thebes. Some of the primary archaeological complexes of Thebes include the Valley of the Kings, the Valley of the Queens, Karnak, Luxor, and then some specific sites as well uh, include the Temple of Hatshepsut, the Temple of Amenhotep III, the Temple of Seti I, uh, the Ramesium, the Temple of Ramses II or Ramses the Great, um, and then the Temple of Ramses III. But transitioning out of Thebes, Thebes was not always the only capital. Briefly, like there was Memphis as well, which was a pretty major capital too at times. But what we're going to focus on today is the site of Amarna or Tel El Amarna, which is the site of the ruins and tombs of Akhetaten, which means horizon of the Aden, Aden being the sun disk or ray god. This city is actually built between the traditional capitals of Memphis and Thebes, Thebes being to the south, Memphis to the north, and it was laid out over about six miles on the east bank of the Nile. It was built in the New Kingdom in about 1348 BCE as the new capital in opposition to Thebes, when the pharaoh Akhenaten, who we had briefly touched on earlier, decided, you know what, we're not going to be a polytheistic religion anymore. We're going to focus on this one god, Aden. And just to give you an idea of how much Akhenaten truly believed and worshipped this god in his great hymn to the Aden, he says, his god could not be jealous or depressed or angry or act on impulse. He simply existed and by that existence caused all else to exist. So the thing to keep in mind though is Akhenaten really liked this God, but that doesn't mean everybody else was down with this. And that goes back to what we were talking about a little bit about the financial or economic implications of this decision. You know, moving a city, taking away a lot of the income from traditional temples in Thebes, really caused a lot of issues. And Akhenaten, through his dedication or devotion to this god, he didn't really focus on much else during his reign. And for those reasons, he's actually considered to be a relatively poor ruler. So about four years after Akhenaten's death, the court returned to Thebes. And this is where we get into King Tut, where King Tut was his son. So 
Although King Tut's reign was relatively short, a lot of his time and energy was focused on this return to traditional ways, because ultimately his father is remembered in history for being the heretic king, and actually not even a king at all. And that's what we get into where, yes, King Tut lived long enough to start this transition, but actually after he died, one of his successors... Fun fact about King Tut is he actually only ruled for 10 years and he died at 19. So just to put that into perspective, 10 years of ruling and he died at 19, meaning he started at what, age nine? That's pretty and ridiculous. And to even imagine like how effective could he really have been <laughs> yeah, exactly. at age nine? It's just like a figurehead. You know, it's like we're watching Game of Thrones almost, you know. But this next guy who was not his direct successor, but... You know, there was this one guy in between named I, who's also relatively famous, but then came Haramheb. And Haramheb had actually faithfully served Akhenaten, King Tut's father, as a general, but from what evidence suggests, had always disagreed with his policies and religious views. And what happens after this is actually pretty remarkable, because when we talk about how the life that we think about and then the life that comes after how we said the life that comes after to a lot of these people in ancient Egypt is more important. But what Haram had, had done was that he ordered Akhetaten or Amarna to be raised and repurposed to remove basically Akhenaten's, I'm going to start getting totally confused with these names, <laughs> Akhenaten's names removed from any temples. And the idea here is, and if you've heard anything about like a lot of these temples and tombs, is that preparing for the afterlife, really like arguing why they deserve in modern times, we would think of as kind of like heaven. And if you don't have your name anywhere, you don't have anything talking about your life. You don't have anything really kind of attributed to you. You're essentially erased from eternity. And this is like one of the greatest insults that could be done onto you. And it was actually, as far as anyone knows right now in ancient Egyptian history, this is the only time this has ever happened on the scale that it was done. Very violent, very aggressive. Haramheb just wanted this dude erased. <laughs> gone. Just gone. Canceled. He got canceled. canceled. He got canceled hardcore. And so actually, when we talk about how was this discovered, how do we know this story? It was actually over the course of about three centuries that the puzzle pieces start coming together where, you know, in the 18th century, Europeans start discovering what's left of the ruins where there's very little left. And then the Amarna letters, which are essentially these tablets, are discovered in 1887, which indicate kind of this correspondence between a pharaoh, again, we don't know his name because they tried so hard to erase him, between a pharaoh and officials about foreign affairs, as well as other official documents. And then finally, Akhenaten comes into view in the 20th century where archaeologists discover further remains that Haramheb had tried to have destroyed, but ultimately was unsuccessful, and this entire story comes into view. But I, I honestly thought, like, I was especially intrigued just by hearing the nickname the Heretic King. But moving on to kings that we do know more about, and it wasn't such an investigation, 
where I'm going to pass this off to Joe to talk a little bit about the discoveries in the Valley of Kings. Again, as we mentioned, this was part of the ancient city of Thebes, um, and it was really the the burial the burial site for almost all of the kings of the 18th. 19th and 20th dynasties and to put some dates to that so the 18th dynasty was from 1550 to 1292 bc keep keep in mind we're counting down um, so that's why it's 1550 to 1292 the 19th dynasty was from 1292 bc to 1189 bc uh, and then the 20th was 1189 bc to 1077 bc and really, this goes back to that fear of plundering. Um, so the kings of the New Kingdom, they were petrified of all of their rich burials being basically plundered by thieves. So basically, they were like, what, let's find the most out there valley and we'll put all of our tombs there. Um, so it was a lonely valley in the western hills behind Deir al-Bari. Um, so there, and, and tombs sunk deep into the heart of the mountain. Pharaohs were interred as well as several queens, a few officials of very high rank, um, and the numerous sons of Ramses the Great. Which, something just to keep in mind when Joe talks about how, you know, they were fearing for the safety of their tombs, of all their burial items, very afraid of plundering. When we talk about the new kingdom, the old kingdom, it informed this decision where a lot of the plundering happened in real time. But then also to note that ultimately, which Joe will get into, for the most part, they were unsuccessful. You know, <laughs> despite all of their efforts, they were unsuccessful. Yeah. Criminals always find a way, right? <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, but really, the Valley of the Kings, it was divided into east and west. The east was much more iconic because most of the tombs were there, whereas the west really didn't didn't have too much. But getting into the tombs, really, the plan of the tombs varied considerably, but consists essentially of really a, a descending corridor. It's interrupted by deep shafts um, and also by pillar chambers or vestibules. And this was really to baffle those robbers. And then at the farther end of the corridor is the burial chamber uh, with a stone sarcophagus in which the royal mummy was laid and store chambers around which furniture equipment were stacked for the king's use in the next world. Um, so again, on that theme of burying with daily items to help them in the in the afterlife. Uh, very interesting concept. But another concept we'll also see is really the painting and depictions of things, famous books. So the walls were in many cases were covered with sculptures and painted scenes uh, depicting the dead king in the presence of deities, especially the gods of the underworld. And really it was designed to help him on his journey through the nether regions. And so a couple Stories, the book of that which is in the underworld, for instance, uh, he travels in the boat of the sun god through 12 divisions that represent the 12 hours of the night. Um, and then in the book of gates, giant serpents guard the portals through which the sun has to pass as strange demons help or hinder the boat on its way. So see, these are just some of the stories that are painted on the walls in these burial tombs. Which it's interesting, you know, like when we talk about like this next life, how difficult it actually sounds where it's like, dang, trying to get there sounds like one hell of a trip. Yeah, right. Well, it wasn't like life hard enough as is. Shouldn't the afterlife <laughs> just be like, you know, You're drinking king mimosa, died, You only know. lived to 19. Yeah. Sounds like a rough time. And then like, it's like, God damn, I have to do this now. Even like a hot tub with a mimosa or something. Why, <laughs> why do they have to, you know, fight giant serpents? God. <laughs> but um, there were 62 known tombs in the Valley of Kings and they were all 
systematically stripped of their contents in the 21st dynasty. And that was really in an effort to protect the royal mummies and to recycle the rich funerary goods back into the royal treasury. Pretty interesting there. Really to protect it. Yeah, interesting. yeah. We have to protect it. You by, can't see it, but I just did air quotes. Yeah, they, they definitely just like the economy was struggling. So they're like, oh, there's a ton of gold in all these tombs. We'll take it back. But really, the only the little tomb of, of Tutankhamun, actually, who reigned from 1333 to 23 or 1323 BCE, um, located in the valley, actually escaped pillage. So really, it was protected by a pile of rock chippings, which were thrown down from a, a later Ramsey tomb. But really, the wonderful treasures that were exhumed from Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922, um, they reside in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. They vividly indicate how rich the burial of a great pharaoh of the empire's heyday must have been. So think about he was a 19 year old, not really like not really known for much. He's only known to us because of the discovery of his tomb was untouched by grave robbers. So it was pretty amazing to see all like the gold and the items sent with Tutankhamun. But that's like our understanding of King Tut is he's super famous because of our discovery of him. But at the time, like he was 19 year old, he ruled for 10 years really was kind of a nothing king. So you can imagine a something king, how much they would be buried with. Yeah, where I can only imagine Ramses II, when we talk about Ramses the Great, what might have been found with him. And, you know, when we talk about like 10 year long reign, we talk about some pharaohs that 33 years, I want to say like, because obviously this is ancient times, but some people did still luckily make it into their 60s or 70s so if you started your reign in your teens very long reign had a chance to make a pretty big mark on society so can't imagine what those must have looked like in their heyday yeah pretty crazy so some of the other tombs in the valley of the kings we'll talk about tomb of ramses the sixth the tomb of seti the first and then of course of tutankhamun we'll, we'll touch on him again um, but really the tomb of ramses the sixth who was uh, originally built by and for ramses the fifth which was his uncle and then the tomb was enlarged and used for the sixth so i don't know why that came about but he was probably like yeah let's uh Seems convenient. I'll take this tomb over. <laughs> we'll make it much better. Um, but it was simple in plan. Really, essentially, it consisted of a, a series of descending corridors that lead deep underground in a straight line to the burial chamber and then painted sunk relief walls, very well preserved. And that's kind of why it's such a big site, because it's really well preserved, bright colors, um, paintings on the walls. And then the first passages are, are decorated with these books that we talked about. So the Book of Gates, the Book of Caverns, the Book of the Heavens, really just ancient Egyptian books of the afterlife. So again, this is what we talked about where it's really meant to guide them in the afterlife. And then the tomb of Seti I. So the tomb, it's one of the longest, deepest, and most beautifully decorated tombs in the Valley of the Kings. So Seti I, he was the, the second king of the 19th dynasty, and he was the father of Ramses the Great, probably the most well-known pharaoh um, in Egyptian history, Ramses the Great. His tomb was actually number 17 in the Valley of the Kings. And it's actually interesting. I've, I found this point really interesting. It's it's sometimes called Belzoni's tomb, and it's after its discoverer, which feels a bit selfish on the discoverer's mm -hmm. fault. Um, <laughs> it but, also just doesn't feel aligned at all with Egypt. Yeah, and like, Belzoni. Yeah, yeah, just... yeah. Like, it sounds like a restaurant in the North End or something. Yeah. But Giovanni Belzoni, he also discovered the Temple of Karnak um, in the, pier uh, the Pyramid of Caffrey. And actually, another interesting fact is he was 
untrained in excavation techniques so he actually caused a lot of damage to the site so this guy is just not does not have the best track record but i guess you know what would you call that like just luck that he discovered all of it and then just on lucky for him unlucky for the ancient egyptian sites yeah honestly (laughs) but the the tomb of seti the first it was the first tomb in the valley of kings to be entirely decorated So I found this pretty interesting. This is kind of like putting on my architecture hat right now. Um, The tomb of Seti I falls under the joggled axis type characteristic of this period. Um, So the first series of corridors and descending passageways terminate into the first pillared room, where in the wall facing but off axis, another series of descending passageways cut into the floor of the room and lead to the burial chamber. Do you think that design, because... We're describing it to you, and I feel like it might sound a little bit confusing even just to be described, but even looking at the map right now, it feels kind of along that theme of what we were talking about where everything was designed to confuse robbers. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. It's like an Indiana Jones temple kind of. That's Right, where I'm like, did anybody die in these? I feel like other people had to have Some booby traps, (laughs) for sure. But yeah, that actually, it's. I mean, it's interesting you bring that up because the the tomb did feature like some new and unique characteristics for the time. So along that same axis of the first series of the corridors and descending passageways, a doorway leads into a single room. So it's believed that this is actually intended to lead intruders to believe that this was, you know, the actual burial chamber. This actually, the tomb is actually also the first tomb to possess a burial chamber with a vaulted ceiling. So again, it's definitely everything's meant to confuse robbers because we're in the new kingdom now. So Mm -hmm. all that pillaging that's happened throughout history, they're like, how can we, let's sit down and create a solution to this problem. We're tired of, of robbers. So this was an attempt of course, because as we know, basically all the tombs were pillaged. (laughs) That's the, the tomb of Seti the first, the next tomb, the last one that we'll just briefly touch on, of course, our, our young, beautiful boy, Tutankhamun. (laughs) So as I've mentioned several times now, he ruled for 10 years and he died at 19. Just a a wild fun fact that you can share at a cocktail party sometime. We always love our good fun facts. (laughs) But really the tomb of the 18th dynasty king, Tutankhamun, is world famous because it's the only royal tomb from the value um, that was relatively intact and really wasn't plundered. So its discovery in 1922 by Howard Carter made headlines worldwide and really continued to do so as the golden artifacts and the other luxurious objects discovered in the tomb were being brought out. So it was just, as you can imagine, there was just so much pouring out of the of the tomb that people were bewildered by. It. And again, it kind of touches on like, you know, if this was an actual relevant king, like how much would have been there? So it's kind of crazy. I think, you know, sometimes too, and I think you briefly touched on it where somehow the entrance was covered by stones or something where Mm. was it coincidental? But the other thing that I've been wondering about so much is the amount of these tombs that were robbed is where are all of the funerary goods now? Where were the parents, you know? Where were the parents? Well, and also, did they not have guards? You know, for Old Kingdom and even part of the New Kingdom, was there no one guarding these tombs? Right? You'd think that you would do that. But I guess, like, you think about, like, the time period of, like, what we're discussing. For us, it feels like it's, like, yeah, you know, it's, like, 20 years. But this is, like, thousands of years. So it's, like, the idea that there isn't a moment when there isn't a guard there, like, some sort of opportunity for crime to occur. Yeah, and I guess if it's so 
isolated the site where would it even i mean how many guards would you really need you know yeah and then yeah yeah exactly like the the isolation of the valley of kings and also you know no technology they don't have any it's not like it's you can just like, like call someone up, hey we need backup now yeah yeah exactly it's not like uh nicholas cage and uh trying to steal a declaration declaration of independence and yeah. <laughs> you know, lasers you know things like that um but yeah i mean the in Tutankhamun's tomb, there was just like daily life things. So clothes, jewelry, cosmetics, incense, furnitures, or furniture, chairs, toys, um, chariots, and weapons. And really, it's just the great irony of all of this is just how minor of a pharaoh he was and how mm-hmm. much we think of him. I don't know about you, but like when someone mentions like ancient Egypt, I immediately think of like King Tut, King Tut, because that was kind of all you like learned about or just like heard. Yeah. In like history class growing up and things like that. Well, and something that we'll get into a little bit about like the Valley of Queens and also the Hatshepsut Temple. Perfect segue. Is, I know, right? This is our segue. Here it is. The fuller tomb was, the more information we can glean about you as a pharaoh. And so like we know that King Tut is a minor king. We know a lot of stuff about him because of how detailed and how much survives. But then once we get into the Valley of Queens, so we know that there were up to 90 known tombs at this point. And it's a burial site of the queens and some of the royal children of the 19th and 20th dynasties. So around the same time of King Tut. A lot of what we know is just like, we know of some people who are there, but the most information that we have is about the favorite wife of Ramses II or Ramses the Great, Mm. Nefertari, who he married in 1312 BC and she bore him his first son and then ultimately had 10 more children because, you know, birth control, not a thing, guys, in case anyone wanted to know. But for context is all these pharaohs had multiple wives, but there was always at any one time a chief or principal queen, the main wife. Queen bee. That's, that's <laughs> The queen bee. <laughs> that's what an honor. Exactly. And the thing about her is, other than the fact that we know that she was queen bee, we don't know much about her life. And a lot of the explanations that are given for this is so much of her tomb, the temples that were made for her, were made by her husband. And there was one comment that I saw in one of our sources that I thought was kind of funny was, he really loved his wife, but someone he loved even more than his wife was himself. (laughs) (laughs) So he obviously has like this beautiful tomb made for her, like plenty of paintings, but then even these paintings are, are nothing about what she did in her, I guess, like human life. It's all about like this theme of timelessness and how like, her presence transcends time. And ultimately, too, like there's this tomb where that he had made for or this temple that he had made for her, where there's this inscription that states for the chief queen Nefertari, for whom the sun shines. And there are a lot of like these beautiful paintings that we kind of talk about in like the Valley of Kings. So we almost have this queen's temple that's almost at the same level of a pharaoh, which then brings us in to the Hatshepsut temple, who she was ultimately known as the queen who, or the princess who would become king, the woman who would become king. And what I found most interesting about this 
was the fact that like her rise to power from what they understand of it, super unlikely where she married her half brother because that was just what they did. Game of Thrones. Yeah. It's, it's very Game of Thrones. Exactly. Yes. But even he was like the third or fourth son in line, fourth in line. And they only had a daughter. So even once he unlikely became Pharaoh, as soon as he passed away, it again, bringing up the multiple wives situation, the kingdom went to her stepson, his son with a lesser wife. But what she ultimately did, and this is what they find over time in like this temple and then also a lot of other archaeological sites that have reference to Hatshepsut is as tradition, she became the regent. So essentially this other son was way too young to be king. And she kind of ruled in his stead ultimately until he reached his majority. But what we find about the seventh year of this stepson's rule is she kind of becomes the pharaoh herself. And what they find in a lot of the art and what they especially in this Hatshepsut temple is through time, like originally she's depicted as queen, very feminine, traditional, queenly, womanly clothing, jewelry. And then kind of halfway through her life, you see her in female figure, but then starting to have all the kingly stuff on. And then ultimately by the end, she's just straight up. She's a man. She is, she is the Pharaoh. And it actually became very confusing for archaeologists in the beginning. And when we talk about through time and through research, the way that all of this evidence is interpreted is when a lot of this was discovered in the late 1800s, it was originally kind of, she was interpreted this very power hungry woman you know just wanted to be the pharaoh ultimately had this very angry relationship with her stepson but what they now think was actually her motivation or what was a potential motivation is that there were arguing and again very game of thrones but kind of <laughs> arguing or like competing parts of the imperial family and in order to protect this line, she had to become Pharaoh because obviously it's very easy to take the crown from a baby. I mean, what's the baby going to do? You'd be surprised. (laughs) What is unfortunate, I guess, ultimately is Tutmos, her stepson, after she dies. And when we were talking about like the length of certain reigns, she reigned for 33 years, him kind of as a co-ruler. And what we find afterwards is he kind of did the same thing that Harem Heb tried to do to Akhenaten earlier on or later on was try to erase her. <laughs> and again, goes back to that theme, though, of the idea of trying to protect the legitimacy of this line. Oh, well, if a woman was reigning, I feel like everyone's going to be like, oh, well, we, we need to get rid of this line because like, how could they let a woman do it? Yeah. So he actually did try to do the same thing. Obviously not nearly as successful. Just because we're talking about it right now. Exactly. We're talking (laughs) about her. And it's actually, you know, one of the most intact of kind of that era. So that century, I guess. And what's kind of cool is they were able to give a really detailed description of what this temple must have looked like. Do you want me to read it? Yes. I want you to read it. Professional. Yes. Radio voice. Please read it for us. 
Dramatically sited at the base of towering limestone cliffs, the temple, which is regarded as one of the architectural wonders of the ancient world, is approached through a series of terrace colonnades and courtyards that appear to ascend up the very side of the mountain. Despite the enormous scale of the complex, roughly the length of two and a half football fields, its overall impression is one of lightness and grace, unlike the fortress-like temples of her predecessors. The temple's lower levels featured pools and gardens planted with fragrant trees. That sounds pretty sweet. (laughs) Supersized images of Hatshepsut were everywhere. Some 100 colossal statues of the female pharaoh as a sphinx guarded the professional way. Lining the terraces were more images of the ruler, some more than 10 feet tall. That's huge. And various devotional attitudes. Kneeling with offerings to the gods, striding into eternity, or the guise of Osiris, god of death and resurrection. Miraculously, a number of these statues, some reassembled, others still in a fragmentary state, survive. I mean, sounds like a pretty amazing temple. I know, right? The pools. They were were able to to construct pools back then. I know. Well, especially in the desert. I don't know. Yeah. Where do they they get the water? We need to look into this. (laughs) It sounds pretty awesome, honestly. I would have loved being at like a pool in ancient Egypt. Mm. If there's like one last point, and when we talk about the evolution through time, is actually this temple was discovered beneath a 7th century monastery. So this is... AD, 7th century AD. Yeah. Yeah. Or, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe like BC? Well, no, 7th, because this would be after. Oh, so. oh after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's the common era. Yeah. CE. CE. The, the common so era. So we're in 7th century CE yeah. when there's a monastery built on top of it. So when we talk about like the various eras that ancient Egypt goes through, yeah. the fact that these, and when we talk about cities built on top of cities, temples built on top of temples. Yeah. That's what happens. Yeah. It is crazy to think we're, what, almost 2023 CE? Mm-hmm. But then just think about, like, like the, even the old kingdom of Egypt is, like, what we've, from zero to now is, like, the other way. And yeah. Like, that's so much just time and, like, human beings have just been well, trying that to other learn fun and improving the world. That we've talked about, about, like, Cleopatra, who we didn't oh, touch yeah. upon today, but how Cleopatra lived closer to our time. Than she did to the construction of the Great Pyramids. Yeah, that's a fun fact. You can share that at a, a cocktail party or something in the water cooler. It's mm-hmm. a great fun fact. Closer to us than the Great Pyramids construction. That's that's interesting. Um, but I mean, that was pretty much everything, and we primarily covered just some stuff in the in the New Kingdom. Obviously, it's just endless things that we can talk about. We're thinking about potentially doing another episode around kind of the Old Kingdom. So, like, you know, things like the the Sphinx and the Great Pyramids at Giza, like that was all the Old Kingdom, which is just so much further back, which is just mind-boggling to kind of think about um, how long Egypt and those dynasties have been around. Um, so potentially in the future, uh, another episode around that. But any other closing remarks, Kira? Yeah, I would just say, I mean, let us know what you think. And if you have any requests, there are any stories that you feel like we missed and you want us to cover, especially if we do another ancient Egypt episode, we're totally open to those recommendations as well. Yeah, we can do hours and hours of ancient Egypt. Also, the, the casual historians at gmail.com. If you want to send an email, feel free to do so. But thanks, everybody. Have a, have a wonderful day. 
Yeah, I mean, whatever time of or the night, day, evening, yeah, evening, morning, eternity. <laughs> yeah. 